I met Phil sometime this summer in our pastor's prayer group. You know that I meet with the uh, area pastors every Thursday morning. We get together for prayer, praying over the city and and our respective uh, congregations and getting to know, uh, praying for each other as well. And and uh, Phil had been invited to join that. Uh, he and his wife Marie had recently moved in, into the area, and they are serving God with Greater Europe Mission, and they've actually been in Europe for about the last dozen years. Uh, before that, Phil was a pastor in the Wheeling area, I think, for about 16 years, also a professor at Judson uh, College, and uh, we share a lot of uh, common roots and background and enjoy that a lot, and also we share a passion for photography, especially of flowers and gardens and nature and things like that. We've already been out uh, shooting together. I have to say shooting together in context of photography or people get excited about that, but, uh, but we have uh, enjoyed that kind of time together already. And uh, I've asked him if he would come and share the word with you this morning. And uh, we've already been richly blessed in the 8 o'clock service, so I know you're going to be too. Phil, come and give us what God's put in your heart. I don't know. What, what, do, you, uh, what do you see when you look at a missionary who is a missionary? And I, I was sitting here thinking, you know, I wonder if they think if I turn sideways and held a flashlight here, they see shadows, you know on the wall over here. Uh, maybe. Um, uh, God got a hold of my heart uh, a lot of years back. And all through some decisions that I had made, uh, like life interfered, <laughs> I, I had pretty much given up on um, ever becoming a missionary. I supported missionaries. I uh, served to churches in mission uh, contexts. If you pastor in uh, Illinois, uh, you're on a mission field. And uh, we, my first foreign mission assignment was as pastor in Provo, Utah. That was uh, pastoring behind the Zion Curtain. And uh, it's been, uh, it's been a, a wonderful experience to see how God uh, can take us and move us into the position and teach us the lessons He wants us to know and learn, and have a wonderful, rich life for us. Uh, my wife um, would have been here this morning, but uh, she is uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritic, and uh, I thought, well, she's had it since she was three years old. I thought, this would, this would disqualify me. We, in getting insurance and that sort of thing has, has always been a, an issue, and I thought, well, we can't go to the mission field if she's a rheumatoid arthritic. And then our third child that was born was born with a congenital heart uh, problem. And um, by the time he was 16, he had four open, he'd had four open heart surgeries and a kidney removed. And so I thought, well, that will disqualify me from ever getting to the mission field. I mean, you, you can't serve on the mission field and have that kind of baggage. But God said, oh yeah, you know, uh, the, the, the point that God is trying to make in my life was that, uh, who taught you to trust, you know? I mean, you're, you're, you came to faith as a child, um, and you learned that to trust in Jesus is the best thing to do, so why don't you do that? And uh, God had, uh, has allowed us to serve in Europe since 97 
And uh, that is such a blessing. Um, sometimes uh, my wife and I will be traveling and we'll kind of pinch ourselves and say, how could two small town kids from Illinois, you know, be traveling all over Europe? How does that work? <laughs> um, so it's been, a, it's been a real joy for us to to work with missionaries, to train them, to work with their families. To uh, My wife works with uh, missionary children and it, it writes uh, literature units for middle school kids. Uh, that's where her real heart is. And then I, uh, in a weak moment, conceded that I would go with her to Budapest, uh, to Hungary in um, March this year, this coming year. Excuse me, my throat's a little dry. <coughs> and there, we would uh, uh, work for the Family Ed Conference for the SHARE group that, that she works with out of Budapest. There'll be about 250 missionary children and parents who will come from uh, primarily Eastern Europe, and uh, we'll have them for an entire week. So I have uh, sixth and seventh graders, and I'm supposed to be helping them learn about the Industrial Revolution. And so I said, uh, okay, um, that sounds great to me. I got some ideas going already. I, so she says, really? She says, I don't know if I can teach anything. I said, you know, it'll come to you. And it has. She's, uh, she's a great, uh, great lady. Well, let's, um, let's turn our hearts towards uh, Christmas. Now, you might think that... Um, the Christmas theme would restrict us to um, looking at passages of Scripture that re- relate directly to the Advent, the first Advent of, uh, of Christ. And um, I'm going to take us to one of the Gospels that does not have that story, because I want us to think of this as a as a great drama, a great drama of redemption, and not see just the small point of light, I want us to see the broader spectrum of light that comes around the story of who Christ is and what we have as a result of that. In fact, uh, years ago I heard a story or a sermon from Evie Hill, who is the late pastor of a church in South L.A., great black preacher. If you ever heard him, you'd remember him. I can remember him addressing the Moody Pastors Conference years ago, and he looked at 1,200 faces of pastors from all over the country and a few other countries as well, and he said, what have you got when you've got Jesus? What have you got when you've got Jesus? And as most great black preachers, they start they start with a very soft, deliberate voice, and by the time they walk up the top of the mountain, you're there with them, and <laughs> they just take you along with them. So, as I think about, well, what have we got when we've got Jesus? What is the purpose? What is the, the meaning behind the celebration that comes in December that we call Christmas? Is it about Santa Claus and gift-giving and um, a little baby in a manger in a small little, uh, uh, I was going to say krippa, uh, the German word, uh, crash, um, nativity scene, <laughs> I get it, under the tree. Uh, um, I love Christmas. I, I, I do. Um, 
my wife is uh, Mrs. Christmas herself. I, I got all ten boxes out of the attic, you know. They just keep coming. But uh, who is this this baby in the manger? Um, we sing those sweet songs about Jesus, the Christ child born in the manger. And I love music. I love uh, I love the traditions of of the carols. I I start playing Christmas music the first part of November, and I won't stop until the end of January. It's just I love this stuff. So why should we uh, look at just the stories of of um, of the birth of Jesus? Why don't we look first at the purpose of him and let's. Rather than start at the beginning of the story, let's just kind of bring our helicopter to land in the middle of the story. Because it's not just about the advent. It's not just about the birth of Jesus. It's why he came. It's, it's the purpose behind. He said he came to seek and to save those who were lost. And the scriptures are quite clear that uh, the purpose of this child being born was that he would come to die. And that was the revelation that came even to Joseph. As uh, he was told that Mary, his espoused wife, the wife he, he was to have, eventually, before they had ever come together, um, she was pregnant. And she was with child of the Holy Spirit. And the angel told Joseph that he would name the child Jesus because he would save the people from their sins. He was to be a deliverer. You give him the name Jesus, which is the same Old Testament name as Joshua. Deliverer. The one who would deliver from sin. I invite you, first of all, to turn to uh, Mark's Gospel. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels because they basically see synoptic, means to see the same way. Optic, synoptic. And they call that because they see the, the story of, of what God was doing in the life of Christ in a very similar way. But the four Gospels, well, then you need to add John's Gospel to make it um, a foursome there. In chapter 10, uh, we already find Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. <coughs> it's just before the triumphal entry. And in um, verse 33... Jesus predicts his own death. This is the third prediction. There are three of these these, um, uh, predictions recorded in uh, the Gospels. Here's this one. We are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him Flog him and kill him. And three days later, what's going to happen? He'll rise again. He will rise. Why should we start there? It's because that's the reason he came. And that's the reason we celebrate. It's because we know that even as Jesus said, the reason I have come into the world is... is Yet to be. It's a a future focus. It's what's going to happen. The reason he came is that he 
would accomplish what God had intended for him. He's going up. He will be betrayed by the religious authorities. He will be condemned to death. He will die. And then, three days later, he will rise again. All of that is, is wrapped up in, as the purpose of his coming initially. Now, what is quite remarkable in the story is that it is also uh, at, the, at the front end of the, the, the gospel understanding that Jesus would say the purpose of his, of his message when he came was, was this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when we look at the prophecy of Malachi, Pastor Martin has just uh, uh, finished up on the minor prophets, but the last writing recorded prophet was Malachi. And in the fourth chapter, uh, it's indicated quite clearly that there is going to be this voice in the wilderness who will be speaking the next word from God. Now, all along, they had been dependent upon the messengers of God, God speaking through human man, uh, human beings, uh, the prophets would give the message that God had put on their hearts, they would indicate it to the people, and the people were to receive it. But Malachi said, because of the sins of the, of the people of Israel, God is going to seal his lips, and you will not hear another word until the voice in the wilderness uh, Isaiah had spoken of it as well. And do you know how long that was? 400 years between Malachi and the coming of, of John the Baptist. The voice in the wilderness crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. E- even those who came to hear John the Baptist's message. Do you remember the Pharisees came and wanted to inquire what the message was and John said, yeah, you brood of vipers, you, you bunch of snakes, you go and repent of your sin and then turn your hearts to God. And then in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, we read Jesus, his first message, first message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. To turn our hearts toward God is, the, is language that suggests a purpose God has come to us so that we'll turn our hearts towards Him. Now, the birth narrative is found in two of the Gospels. I mean, the traditional. I alluded already to the one in Matthew, when the angel is speaking to Joseph. And you have what many scholars believe is the genealogy of Joseph. uh, Because that was the legal genealogy. But you say, well, wait a minute, he was born not of man, not of Joseph, but of Mary and the Holy Spirit. So what does that matter? Well, it matters for the legal genealogy. And it's a different genealogy in Luke. Well, how do you account for that? Again, there are many scholars who believe that that records Mary's genealogy. And so you have, and and in both cases, they go back through David. So in, in either case... The prophecy of, of the Davidic Messiah coming is fulfilled. But here in, in uh, Luke's gospel, beginning in chapter 2, 
you have um, not only the genealogy of Mary, but you have this beautiful story that we've come to love. My wife, if she were here, could probably stand up still that she learned as a little girl the entire chapter and recite the second chapter of Luke. And here is recorded not only um, uh, Mary's understanding of what God was doing and her release of herself to him to, that God would fulfill his purposes in her, but you also have uh, the, the story of the Christ child being born, of the shepherds coming from the fields, of the angels singing glory in the highest, uh, peace on earth to men of goodwill. You have Simeon, the old man, of coming and taking the Christ child and holding him in his arms and lifting him up to God and saying, I have seen the salvation of God. He is, he is here. He is, a, he is the deliverance of Israel. He is the... Um, he is the, the, the rising up of many in Israel who will believe and also a stumbling block for those who will not. And you have Anna who at 84 years of age has been going to the temple every day of her life and, and waiting and praying in anticipation that indeed someday, one day, the Messiah would come and she would be alive to experience his touch. And so she was. But those are traditional. Let's look at, um, at a non-traditional setting for the Christmas story. In uh, Hebrews chapter 1, and that's where I want us to move, we have a non-traditional Christmas story. In fact, this is my favorite Advent passage. Look at these words. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in many in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the powerful word, by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The Hebrew writer begins his, his book, written to Jewish Christians, with this glorious introduction of God's ultimate final word. Now, isn't it interesting that we still have people who say, you know, if God were to speak to me, if Jesus were to appear in person, I might believe if Jesus would de declare himself, come down and do a miracle in my midst, I would believe. In fact, my own son years ago, uh, who was really struggling with his faith, he said, you know, I don't, I don't really uh, uh, know whether or not God is, is for real or not. If, if Jesus would come and, and show himself to me visibly, I would believe. 
I said, really? I said, really? In light of all that he has already done, in light of all he has already said, in light of all that the scripture says about him that is true, in light of the, the testimony of the church, in light of the testimony of both of your parents and your grandparents, you still think that it's going to take a visible appearance before you can receive Christ? I said, I said, not everybody who saw Jesus in, in the days of his public ministry believed in him. Certainly not. Many of them were in the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. He is not worthy to be called the Son of God. So I said, um, you know, why don't you learn to trust what the scripture says about him? Now, let's look at this. In the past, uh, so here's, here's our time reference. In the past, that's behind us, and, and that suggests that there's a little description of history. That's what history basically is, is, is what's already happened. Uh, Voltaire, the French writer, once said that history was a pack of tricks that the dead played on the living. And uh, I, I majored in history in uh, undergraduate studies, so I kind of like it a lot. I'm, uh, if, if, if I'm watching TV, it's probably on the History Channel. There's always things to learn. In the past, what's the next word? Oh, it's the subject of the sentence. Did you get that? In the past, there's the subject, God. And what did God do? He spoke. Do you mean to tell me that there is a God who is there and he speaks to us? Huh? Yeah. That's right. He has spoken in the past and he spoke especially, how does that say? To, he spoke in the past to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in, my, in, in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken. Now, how was it in the Old Testament? The prophets received the word of God and they said, I got a couple of suggestions I want to lay on you. This is, this is how I feel. No, never. That was how you could tell uh, one of the ways in which you could tell a false prophet from a true prophet. What did the prophet of God say? Thus saith the Lord. This is what God has to say. And it was the Jewish people who went, oh yeah? I don't want that. Thank you very much. In fact, um, years ago I had a, a Lutheran uh, teacher ask me, I said, did you hear how the Ten Commandments came? I said, no, really. How did they come? He said, well, God approached, first of all, he approached an Arab and he said, I got some commandments I want to give you. And he says, oh yeah, give me a for instance. He said, well, um, thou shalt not steal. He said, what? He said, how do you expect me to make a living? I don't want those. Take them to somebody else. So he, he approached a Frenchman. He said, I, I've, got, I've got some commandments I'd like to give you. He said, oh really? He said, give me a for instance. He says, thou shalt not commit adultery. <laughs> he said, that's in the fabric. It's a cultural thing. We don't want that. Give them to somebody else. 
he found a guy named Moses up on the mountain. He said, Moses, he says, I've got certain commandments for you. Moses said, oh yeah? How much do they cost? He said, they're free. He says, fine, I'll have ten. <laughs> yeah. Well, no truth to that, of course. The, the Word of God, that's what's important. Do you know what the Ten Commandments are called in Hebrew? The words. <laughs> the words. Ten words. God speaks. He spoke commandments. How does the first chapter of Genesis work? In the beginning... That's the next word? God. And then it's emphatic. In English it reads, In the beginning God created. In the Hebrew it's very emphatic. It says, In the beginning God, He, this guy, this person, this entity, God, He created. The verb always carries a pronoun with it. So it's redundant. But it, the Hebrew writer wanted you to know that it was God in the beginning who created. And how did he create? Did he take a magic wand and, and wave it? He spoke. That's exactly right. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a separation between the firmament and the waters. And God said, let us make man in our own image. And it was so. And it was good. And it was very good. Now, walk with me back to John's Gospel. Because this is, this is all a reflection. It's kind of a feedback of what, of what you get uh, with, this, with this terminology. In the past, God spoke. How does John's Gospel begin? In the beginning, next word. Yeah. In the beginning was the Word. Wow. You mean God creates with words and He is the living Word? Yeah. He is the living Word. Words are fun, aren't they? We just got, um, got in, we spent last week with our, our, our youngest of six grandsons in, uh, in San Diego. We were just north of San Diego. So we're, we're there, and he, he has a birthday uh, tomorrow. He's two years old. And he's, he's just forming his, his vocabulary. He's listening, and he's trying to mimic. It's fun to, to listen to him. And uh, my son said to, to his little boy, he said, Do you like mommy's cooking? And he says, It's... Delicious. <laughs> That's for delicious. And uh, there are lots of things he says that I don't understand, but that one I got. Well, when God speaks, he speaks so that we can understand. Do you realize that there is no capacity on our part to understand God and who he is unless he tells us who he is? Sometimes when I was teaching at Judson College and we start a survey class, I would bring a little box in and I would, I would have it tied up in a ribbon and I'd say, what's, what's in this? 
And they're looking at me like, what are you, a weirdo? I said, no, go. You're going to guess. What's in this box? And they, they would guess, and they were always wrong. <laughs> I said, well, how could you find out? We could run through an x-ray machine. We could, we could put a scan on it. We could, you know, uh, put a magnet up against it. We could, we could run some scientific tests. I said, yeah, that's one way. I said, and? I, and they had almost never guessed where I was leading them. I said, or, 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 and, or. I said, you could ask the person who put it in the box and tied a knot on it. How would that be? Oh. Well, that's pretty simple. Maybe the, the person who created this object lesson for, for the class has something to tell you. I said, think of the revelation of God as God wrapping up for you what he wants you to know about what you have when you have Jesus. That's what. And they're kind of, hmm. <laughs> well, it's um, the, rev- the revelation of God in Christ is just this. God had spoken in parts and in pieces over time. And aren't you glad he didn't give up on just one presentation to you? I can't tell you how many times I have to have the same lesson taught to me about computer use. You know, anybody who's over the age of 40, 45, learning computers like learning a foreign language. And it keeps changing. You young people with the, you know, the, the phones and the texting and all of that, I, you know, I, I have, I, I'm always on the, the, the tail end of it. You know, as it's no longer being used, I'm just getting it. And uh, I'm just so uncool about that. It's, it's pathetic. But uh, it's... I have to get at it in different ways. I'm a visual learner. I have to see it. I have to experiment with it. I, I need to do it. I need to make my mistakes. That's, you know, that's kind of the way I learn. God was trying to get our attention and teach us. And in many different ways, over time, He spoke to Moses... And Moses wrote it down and spoke to us. He spoke to the prophets. And they wrote it down. And they talked about it. And they gave it to us, not all at once, but over, over hundreds of years. And in different ways. You think about some of the funny things that, that, that the prophets did to try to get the people to understand what God was about to do. Jeremiah goes down to the pottery shop. And he sees the potter's wheel. And, and the clay being picked up and being fashioned in the hands of the, pot, the skilled potter. And, and then being rejected on the side because the sovereign hands of the potter were shaping that pot the way the potter wanted it to be. And Jeremiah is going, oh, I think maybe God is trying to tell me something. Or Ezekiel. Digging a hole in the side of his house to, to show how a thief breaks in and what was going to happen to the people of Israel because of their faithlessness. They were going to be taken captive. Or shaving his head and taking a third of the hair and throwing it up in the air and a third he burned and a third he put in the ground. You go, whoa, that, that guy's weird. 
But he's trying to help them understand the word of God. What God is saying to them. He speaks to the prophet. And the prophet says, this is what God is saying. In fact, you might find this interesting. A Jewish male was not allowed to read the book of Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel until he was 35 years old. He thought he was, the Jews just thought he was too immature. Until he had some life experience behind him to understand the book of Ezekiel. And so we go back to that word and we still dig it out and we still work on trying to understand what was God saying in bits and pieces that was pointing to something in the future. He spoke. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And here is, here's this conjunctive, but in these last days. There are just two phases of God speaking. There is, there is that time leading up to the, to the announcement of the kingdom of God by John the Baptist and by Christ himself. That was phase one. This is phase two. And there are only two phases. God is speaking and he says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, and then there are these descriptions, or ascriptions, if you please, about who this son is. I, I began by asking you to think about that question that Evie Hill raised in his sermon. What have you got when you've got Jesus? You have the fulfillment of a God who speaks in various times and places, who announced the coming of phase number two. You have this promise realized and revealed in Jesus Christ. You have this Son who has been spoken through by the Father, whom this Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, the Son through whom He made the universe, the Son who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The son who sustains all things by the power of his word. <laughs> you thought about who is it who, who sustains our world? Who keeps you on the planet earth? Who's in charge of gravity and <laughs> everything else? It's the power of his creative word that does it. You say, well, that's really simplistic. Well, I don't understand all its mechanisms. I, I started out in engineering school to try to understand some of that. I don't understand a lot of things. But I do understand that God was speaking through His Son, who is, who is so special. Listen, listen to these descriptions of Him. He is appointed heir of all things. To be an heir means that you have been mentioned in the bequest of the rightful owner. And is it any wonder that Paul, and if I chase that rabbit, we will be here for a while. In, In Romans, Paul says, you are joint heirs with Christ. Ooh. But Christ is heir of all things. All things belong to him. All things are coming back to him. And why not? Who created them? 
He did. First chapter, Colossians chapter 1, 15, verse 15. And he is the, is the image of the, of, of the invisible God. That, that's who he is. We have not seen the Father, but we can see the Son. And, and the Son and the Father are one. Now you, he says, he is not only that, he's not only the heir, but he is, is the one through whom he made the universe. And, and uh, Paul, in writing to Colossians, he says, and nothing was made that wasn't made through him. He is the creator, he is the creative word of God. And he says the Son is more than that. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is <coughs> he's like looking at the sun. And I have to use, you know, when you, when you start using an analogy, it always breaks down. So, just kind of think about this. What does it mean that he is the radiance of his glory? He is the, he is the radiance. If Moses had to cover his face when he came off the mountain because he knew that the glory of God that he had encountered on the mountain was fading away, here is the sun whose glory never fades away. Here is the, here is the sun whom, if you were to look at the S-U-N, what you see is not the sun. You see the radiance of the sun. You could not possibly get close enough to, to know the sun, the S-U-N. Before you were vaporized. But Jesus is the radiance. He is the, the, the glory of the Father. The glory of God. And the exact representation of His being. I, I can't understand all of that. It's more... It, it's much more deep than I can, I can comprehend. And I've tried to, to get my hands around that thinking, well, what... What does it mean that he is the exact representation of his being? I thought about the ways in which authority is transferred in, in the Old Testament. Of course, there is the image of the, of the signet ring. The, the ring of authority that the king or the prince or the one in authority writing a letter would, would have. And he would roll up the document and we, or flatten it out. Probably rolled it up. And he would take this, the sealer wax and put it right on the seam. And while it was still malleable, he would take the ring and press the rings. And so the exact representation of the ring, of the authority of the one sending the letter, would be in the seal. That's, that's who this is. This, but he is more than that. He's not just a, a seal in the wax. He is not just a the beaming rays from the sun. He's more than that. <coughs> so as we try to get our hands around that, just unpack that and, and ask God to give you more, more truth. I said, what does it mean that the sun is the radiance of his being? Maybe, the, you know, maybe there was a halo. <laughs> All Renaissance art has halos on the, you know, the, the image of the Christ child. <laughs> and if you look at those those pictures of the, of the ancient art, you see the, all the halos. Maybe that's just a, a couple of rays of radiance of the glory that is His. But He goes beyond that. 
the world itself is sustained. He, he puts all things together. He sustains all things. And he's not just talking about, you know, the keeping uh, global warming at bay, sustaining all things, or cleaning up from the Valdez or, or from the, the Gulf Coast. He's not, he's talking about the, the sustaining of life itself. Emotional, physical, mental, spiritual. All that, that consists of life, He is the great sustainer. He is the one by the word of His power and the power of His word that does it. And then He says, and after He had provided purification for sins, what did He do? He sat down. Well, how was purification for sins made? The high priest on the Day of Atonement we go into the Holy of Holies with the blood from the sacrifice and there uh, over the altar with uh, the, the seraphim looking down at, uh, at, at, the, um, at the place of atonement called the mercy seat the blood from the sacrifice was sprinkled as a covering now in the Old Testament that is the way sin was atoned for but not atonement in the sense that it was taken out of the way, but atonement in the sense that it was taken care of temporarily. Now, it, this may be, be new to some of you. I hope that some of you have already processed this. Either what Christ did on the cross that enabled him to sit down, finished, is effective for all time, for my sin, for your sin, for the sin of my grandsons, and for the sin of Moses as well, and David, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel. And there's just one, one plan that God has. That's His A plan. He doesn't have a B plan. One plan for atonement, and it is Christ. And when He made purification for sin. It wasn't just a covering. It was He Himself who climbed up on the altar and offered His life as a, as a covering for our sin. So, it was not just covered, but it was also an expiation. It was taken out of the way. First time. First time. And all of the sin of all of the saints of the Old Testament was was taken care of by what Christ did on the cross. That's why if you look at, uh, at verses uh, uh, 39 and 40 of chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says, And all of these were incomplete because God had promised something better to us. And that something better is a better atonement, a better sacrifice, a better purification for sin. And that is exactly what He accomplished in Christ. And that is exactly why He could sit down you know, in the place of atonement, where it was in the Holy of Holies, in the temple and the tabernacle before that, there was never a chair. There was never a place to sit down. If you touch what, the ark, what happened? You zapped. You're done. And, and in order to, uh, to help prevent even having to go into the Holy of Holies after the high priest had gone in to make atonement for sin, they put a rope around his leg. In case, in talking to God, he died. And they had to pull him out. Nobody wanted to go in there while, while God was transacting business. Particularly the business of sin. 
I mean, even in the, in the Old Testament setup of, of how this sin was taken care of, you had, you had two goats. You had the, the, the goat that was sacrificed and the goat that was ceremonially used is called the Azazel. The high priest would walk and, and begin to pronounce the sins of Israel upon the goat's head. How would you like to have your name mentioned in that? On the great day of atonement that happened once a year. The priest could be there a long time. And then he was to be led out into the wilderness and, and be left abandoned. As if uh, the sign, uh, that's really what the Hebrew word means, lost. It means to be abandoned and wander aimlessly forever. Well, the question that uh, a junior age boy would always ask is, what happened if that uh, goat showed up? I tried that with a cat once. Four days he was gone. (laughs) And my wife still holds that against me. I hated that cat. And um, that cat, four days later, is outside the back door. Meow, meow. And, um, but what, what, what happened to the, the goat if he showed up? And he's bearing the sins. Ceremonially. Well, they had a place. I, I, I visited this place. It's just a, it's an awesome experience outside on the backside of Jerusalem. This was the mountain where, the, where they, the, the priests would take the goat, the Azazel, and they would, they would grab the goat and hurl him 600 feet off a cliff. But you know, goats are very hardy. <laughs> what happened if the goat survived the fall? Ah, bring up the rocks. And they would pelt this goat with heavy rocks from 600 feet above him until he was dead. They didn't want that goat coming back. Jesus was taken to the cross by the will of the Father and by his own submission and crucified on the cross and hung there until dead because he had made purification for our sins and made it so completely that he could be ushered in to the throne room of God and sit down because his work was finished. It's as if the words from John, the last words from the cross, to thy in Greek, in one word, it means it is finished. It's done. It's finished. It's over. Hebrews chapter 6 says, but what if? What if it wasn't enough? (laughs) What if it wasn't enough? And the writer of Hebrews says, well then, God would have to do it all over again in the same way. And if you know the book of Hebrews, it, it continues to beat once for all. Once for all. The Hebrew writer in chapter 6 says he would have had to been born according to all the prophecy of the Old Testament. Born of a virgin. Born in Bethlehem of Judea. Go to the cross 
having lived a sinless life, be raised again. He says, it's not going to happen, friends. Why does it need to happen twice when once is enough? And so the writer here says, it is finished. It is glorious. It is marvelous. When you look at the crash under a tree, and I have several of them, <laughs> Um, in my house, little crushes collected in Europe. I love, I love to look at them. And you see that infant baby. So small, so tender, so compelling. Remember, he came to die. He came for you. He came for me. Message of, of Christmas is always the message of Easter. And the message of Easter is that the one who is crucified for us is risen again and he lives for us that we might live with him. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. He came that we who were dead in our sins and trespasses and dead as mackerels <laughs> and, and bound for hell, he gave us a hope in heaven when we trust in him. I believe that. I've staked my life on it. And I've staked my future on it. May God enrich our understanding of His Word. That we will rejoice in Him when we realize what we have. When we have Jesus. Shall we pray? Father God, we deserve none of this. What we deserve is to be that goat who had the sins pronounced upon his head and led out into a wilderness to die. That's what we deserve. But you have given us grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. You have given us not only have you withheld what we deserve, but you have given us grace what we don't deserve. Thank you for reminding us each year at Christmas time that we serve a Savior who because of the purification of sin and because He is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us and because He has in Himself resurrection life that is imparted to us who believe through the power of the Spirit of God we can sing and shout the message that Jesus who is born was born as King for us may we see him afresh with new eyes of hope and trust and love and a desire to serve in Jesus name we pray Amen.